Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of John. John chapter 1. Like I said last week, you know, we've been saying for several years, go to the book of Romans. Now we're going to start saying for several years, go to the book of John. We're going to start in chapter 1. Today we're going to just do some introductory work on the book of John. Make a closing application. I've talked a lot already, talking about other things. So my time's going to be a little short. It'll be a shorter message, but that's fine. That's good. I don't see anybody complaining too much. We're just going to do an introduction. I want to think about the gospel. The gospel of John is a vitally important book in the New Testament. Not that every book isn't. It is. The gospel of John, though, is a beautiful portrayal of the person of Jesus. And I just want to draw your attention to verse 14 as we begin today, as we do this introduction, because it is so pertinent to this time of year and the season. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's join together our hearts in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we sang this morning some of the great carols of our faith that relate to your coming, your incarnation. Lord, it is a mystery that we cannot comprehend the eternal word the second person of the Trinity would become flesh. Paul speaks of that great event, that incarnation. When he says to us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not think it something to be held onto, to be grasped, to be equal with God. So he laid that aside, not his inherent equality, but Lord, all the trappings of glory, and you humbled yourself, taking on the form of a servant, becoming flesh. Lord, as we meet you in the pages of Scripture today, and in the many weeks to come, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see, that we would behold your glory. Glory is of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Teach us, Lord, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's think about John's gospel for just a few minutes this morning. Let's think about what we already know about the gospel. I'm sure you've read through the gospel. There are many people, obviously, who have been born again, who have been saved by reading the gospel of John. Many times if somebody asks me where to start in the New Testament, and they're a new Christian, or they're maybe seeking the Lord, I'll say, start reading the gospel of John. Read that letter. Come to terms with what it says. You know, in the New Testament, we have a fourfold gospel. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by different apostles, looking at the same person from different vantage points, 
and giving to us an inspired, inerrant view of his glory so that we could believe in him and be saved. We don't have all the details of his life. That is obvious. We don't know everything that he did. The Bible says that clearly. But we have exactly <coughs> excuse me, what the Holy Spirit knew we needed in order to know who he is, to believe in him, and to be saved. The Apostle Peter said it this way. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You're not saved by your works. You're not even saved by your faith. You say that sounds like heresy. No. The object of your faith is what saves you. Who is your faith in? Is it Jesus? He is the Savior. We have a fourfold gospel that presents to us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you say, what does the word synoptic mean? It just simply means these are a synopsis of the life and ministry of Jesus. They give to us an overview. Um, they don't all start with his birth, but they go through his life and they give to us a synopsis of who he was and what he did, what he taught. The Gospel of John is very, very unique. It is interesting that most of the material that John introduces us to is completely unique to his gospel. So, for instance, consider this. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have Jesus in the upper room, and we have him instituting the Lord's table and speaking with his disciples and speaking to Judas. But in all three of those gospels, we don't have him washing feet. We don't have him teaching about, I am the vine, you are the branches. You don't have the extended teaching on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So all the material in the upper room, what we call the upper room discourse in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, is completely unique to John's gospel. Chapter 17 is what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It is just before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Father, I'm coming back to you. Glorify your Son. I have glorified you. He says, be with my church. Help them to be one, even as we are one. Guard them from the evil one. And he prays this intercessory prayer for his disciples, and none of that is in any of the other Gospels. Woman taken in adultery. Man by the pool of Bethesda. Water turned to wine. Healing of a, of, of a nobleman's son. All these miracles end up being completely unique to John's gospel. And so the gospel of John introduces to us 
much information about the person of Jesus that we would not know anywhere else in the Bible. Now, I want you to start with me in John chapter 1, and let's just do a little bit of an outline. Oh, let's talk about key words first. There's going to be some words as we go through John's gospel. You're going to see boom, 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 repeated time and time again. One of those words, probably the most often repeated word in the gospel of John, the key word would be the word love. Love. So, for instance, in John 3.16, you all know that verse? You awake? What does it say? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. And all through the Gospel of John, we will see this teaching on the reality and the truth that God is not indifferent. God is not unmoved. God sees us in our sin, and his heart of compassion goes out to us, and he loves us. He loves us so much, he sent his son to die for us. And so we see the message of love, and then we'll also see in the letter, it says, if you know the love that God has for you, then love each other. Amen. And so we see that teaching on love all through the Gospel of John. Another key word is the word light. Light. In fact, in John chapter 1, some of the first verse, he talks about how light has come into the world. And darkness could not overcome it. So we see the teaching of light, that God is light. I am the light of the world. We also see this word, truth. The truth will set you free. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. We also see the word believe. We have to talk about that word a lot. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What is authentic faith? What is saving faith? But we see this all the time through the Gospel of John. Jesus will say to people, believe in me and you will not perish. You will be saved. Believe in me. This word is used abundantly by Jesus in the Gospel of John to talk about the one thing that God uses to convert and save the human sinner who is lost in sin, who is like the dead tree that's fallen in the woods. These are some of the key words. Now, here's where we're going in an outline. I want you to notice with me, go with me to, I'll tell you, know, you can go there, John chapter 20, verse 31. I'm going to advance one slide, and you'll see the verse. Here it is. This is the purpose statement of the book. It is in chapter 20, and it is in verse 30 and 31. Here is the purpose. Notice what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs, notice this phrase, in the presence of his disciples. These are things that he does. In the presence of his disciples... And there were many other ones. In fact, he says at the end of the chapter, in chapter 21, he says, if everything that Jesus did was recorded in books, I suppose the world could not even contain the books. So there are things that John selects by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, <coughs> but then notice here, but these ones are written down 
in order that you may believe. And what does he say he wants us to believe? That this enables us to believe? That Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the chosen one. He is the Christ. The one who was promised long ages before and has come in fulfillment to the Old Testament scriptures. That Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. What does that mean? Chapter 5 He says, I am God's son to the Jewish leaders of the day. And it says there, by doing so, they pick up stones to stone him because he was making himself equal to God. So we got to talk about this phrase, son of God. What does that phrase mean? That Jesus is the son of God. But he says here, these signs will enable us, as we study them, to believe that Jesus, the person Jesus, his personal name, is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And that by what? Believing you may have what? Life. Through what? His name. Just like we already quoted from the book of Acts. Neither is there salvation in any other. No other name. No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. One name alone. The name of Jesus. That's the purpose. It's in John chapter 20, verse 30. Now, the way this lays out then is in chapter 1, verse 1 to 18, we're going to have what's called a prologue. And in that prologue, we are going to have a thesis statement that tells us about Jesus' person. Who is he? Who is he? And then... Beginning in chapter 1, verse 19, and going through chapter 20, verse 30, that's a lot of material, we are going to have evidence that supports this thesis. So all of the body of the letter is going to be evidence that supports the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name you can be saved. So this is all supporting evidence of this thesis statement, an extended thesis statement in verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1. Make sure you remember that as we go through that prologue. And then in John 21, we have what's called an epilogue. Where it says in John chapter 21, verse 1, after these things, this is what Jesus did. And it just gives us a summation of the end of what Jesus does after the resurrection before his ascension. Peter, there again, something we don't have in any of the other Gospels. Peter is walking along the beach with Jesus. And Jesus three times asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And all that material is in chapter 21. And it is an epilogue to the book. Here's John's method. John's method is the Holy Spirit has selected signs. We're going to talk about signs and what these are again. Several weeks ago, a couple months ago, we talked about the word sign, simeon, in our study of the book of Romans. The word sign speaks of a miracle, but it does so from the vantage point that the miracle was pointing to something. 
When you see a signpost on the highway that says Thane, the sign is not Thane. It is pointing to Thane, correct? It is signifying where Thane is, but the sign is not the thing itself. So too the miracles of Jesus. They were signs that were pointing to a deeper reality. And so the Holy Spirit has selected signs that will signify Jesus' person. So people will say, no one could feed 6,000 people plus the kids and the women with a few loaves of bread and a few fishes unless they were God. Nicodemus says to Jesus in chapter 3 when he first comes to him, We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do the signs that you are doing unless God is with them. Nicodemus said that at the beginning of the interview. When they saw these signs, they knew Jesus was different. So these are Holy Spirit-selected signs that signify Jesus' person and secure salvation by faith. So we have seven selected signs. This beginning of signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. And he demonstrated his glory and they believed in him. What was that sign that he did that was the first demonstration of who he is? He's at a wedding... And he did what? He turned water into wine. And it says there, this is the beginning of the signs. Okay, so there are seven selected signs. As we go through the book of John, we're going to see seven different miracles that the Holy Spirit has selected for us, for us to study and understand that are going to prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So that just like Peter said, when Jesus says to Peter, who do men say that I am? Who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There are seven selected signs, and then we will also see in the book, remember the number seven always points to completion. It's an important number in the scripture. There are also seven supporting self-declarations. Seven times in this book, Jesus will say, I am. And when he says that, the Greek construction is very clear. He says this, ego emi, I am, I am. That doesn't come out in our English translation, but it's clear in the original. And it harkens back to an interview that a man had with God at Mount Sinai. When Moses said to this God who is speaking to him, who is calling him to go, he says, who do I say sent me? And God says to him, he says, what is your name? He says, I am that I am. And what we will see is seven times in the book of John 
Jesus is going to say, I am that I am the light of the world. I am that I am the door of the sheepfold. Seven times. And people didn't miss it. When people heard that, they knew what he was claiming because they knew the truth of the book of Exodus and Moses' interview with God on Mount Sinai. I am that I am. And so we see seven supporting self-declarations. Make no bones about it. Jesus claimed to be God come in the flesh and nothing less. He did not claim to be just a good teacher. He did not claim to be a good man. He claimed to be God. So, in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, in this prologue, there are three parallel statements. Let's do this real quick. Look with me in John chapter 1, and I want you to go with me to verse 1. He says, in the beginning. Does that sound like something else in the Bible? Like Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning, God created. Now, we could take that phrase and say, in the beginning, um, I, I, you know, I could say, in the beginning of my life. But that's not what the phrase means in the scripture. The phrase, in the beginning, speaks of what we would call eternity past. The time, I don't know what else to call it, but the time of eternity before time. So it was in the beginning, before God began to make. In that time, in the time before God created anything, before God created the heavens and the earth and he began to speak, in the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, I'm not going to explain this word logos to you today. We're going to do that probably next week a little bit and explain what that word means when it says he is the word. He is the logos. But what I want you to see is there are three parallel statements. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then down in verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, we have seen his glory. So here's what we have going on in this prologue. He is telling us some things about Jesus. And what he is telling us is this, that in the beginning, the word was. Right? In the beginning, the word was. And then, the second thing that he tells us is, and the word was with God. So the word was in the beginning, and he was with God. And we're going to see the third thing he says about him is, he was God. So he was in the beginning, and he was with God, but he is also God. How did that fit together? Well, we're going to have to deal with some issues of the Trinity here, clearly. One God in three persons, a mystery that we cannot comprehend. But we see here that in the beginning, in that period of time, the word was. He is in existence. There's no teaching in the scripture that we would call 
the pre-mortal existence of souls, of human souls. The Bible teaches that I come into existence at my conception. That's my beginning point. From that point, I am eternal. I begin at conception, and I will always be. I will either be in heaven or in hell, but I will always be. But I began at conception. Jesus did not. He was before. Second thing, he was with God. The word meta in the, in the original language speaks of fellowship or communion. It speaks of personhood. They were together. They related. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, you know, God was really kind of lonely, and so he decided to create the world so he'd have somebody to talk to? Have you ever had somebody tell you that? That's a bunch of baloney. God was not lonely. Not in the least. God had himself in all of his glory to visit with, to know, to explore the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They were together. They were with one another. The third thing, he was God. He's not less than God. He is God. Now, here's the parallel statement. In the beginning, the word was, but he, in verse 14, became flesh. Now, that's a mystery. God becoming flesh. Second part of these parallel statements is this. Not only was he with God, he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. He dwelt among people. So John says in 1 John, that which we have heard, which we have seen, which our hands have handled are the word of truth. We saw him. We talked to him. We saw him do these things. And so he was with God, but you know what? He was also with us. And he dwelt among us. And since he was God, the third thing we see is we have seen his glory. He says in this, no one has seen God in his glory and lived. Remember Moses? Moses wanted to, and he says, you can't see me and live, dude. I'll put you in a rock. And when I go by, I'll just lift up my hand and let you see the trappings of my glory. But if you look at me, you're going to fly apart. You're going to be with me because you're not going to see me. No one has seen God at any time. But the only one that was begotten of the Father, he has revealed him, and we have seen his glory. And so as we close, why John? Why are we studying John? Well, I guess because you're stuck with it because I am. No, I'm just joking. But, you know, man, I prayed and prayed and prayed. I went through like four different books thinking about the next one to start to. And I kept coming back to John. And I'd ask myself, why? Why am I coming back to this? Why do I think the Holy Spirit wants me to bring this up? And I think it was for me. And this is for me because you only get the spillover from what the Lord does in my life as I study his word through the week, getting ready to preach. But for me, the reason I want to study the gospel of John, the short answer would be this. I want to know Jesus better and I want to be more like him. I, I just do. The older I get, I want to know him better and I want to be more like him. 
And I think the way I'm going to know that, the way I'm going to do that, is to just interact with him in the pages of his word. And so together my prayer is that the Lord would do this for us. That as we study week by week through the Gospel of John, we would get to know Jesus better and we would become more like him. I love history. I don't know about you. In fact, when I was running from the Lord and not wanting to go into ministry, the way I tried to get around it was I was like, oh, I'm just going to study to go teach history. So I started out in university thinking about being a history teacher and eventually ended up studying for the ministry because the Lord wouldn't let me go. It made me so miserable. But I've always loved history. I, I have, next to theology, I have more history books in my library than any other thing because I love to read history. And over the years, I've accumulated many books about many different people. One of the most recent ones that I read that was really good was the story of Daniel Boone. It was an awesome book. That was an awesome man. Towards the end of his life, Daniel Boone was asked by somebody. He was this great pathfinder who opened up so much of our country. But he was asked by this guy in an interview. He's close to death. He's in Missouri. And this guy says to him, Daniel Boone, have you ever been lost? And he thinks for a minute and he says, no, but I have been bewildered a time or two. <laughs> kind of cracked me up when I read that. It's hard to say that we've been lost, right, guys? Your wife says, are you lost? No. We're on a shortcut, right? We're on a shortcut. Get back in the wagon. I love history. I've read so many different books about great people. But I haven't met any of them. Well, I should say that. Most of the books I read are about guys that have been long in the, in the box, right? They're down in the dirt. I have met them. I know a lot about them. But I've never met them. Even when you read the Bible, think about this. You read the life of Moses, David, Abigail, Ruth, Esther. These are great people, and you read a lot about them. But you don't meet them. But Jesus is different. Because he is the living word. When you read his word in a way that we cannot understand, he meets us there. And we come to know him. I don't know Daniel Boone. I know a lot about him. But I do know Jesus. Amen. I have met him. I have met him in his word. And I want to know him better. Jesus says to people of his day, he said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but they testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. The Bible speaks of realities that are deeper than just the words on the page. 
And the greatest reality that the Bible speaks of is the person of Jesus. When we talk about believing in him, we're not just saying you believe things about him. We are saying that there is something that happens through faith and trust that ushers us into a relationship with him. So as we study his word, I want to meet him more so I can be more like him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you were willing, living word, to become flesh. And all that that meant, hunger, thirst, getting the flu, all those things, being tired, so that you would understand, so that when we could pray, and when we do pray, as you say in Hebrews chapter 2, you know exactly what we're going through, and you can sympathize with us. It became flesh. You lived among us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would just part the veil in your word enough so we would see your glory. And so we pray in Jesus' name.